still lack. And so there's no ability to recognize the things that happen to a person's heart, body, soul when they eat as a way of standing out from the moment of, say, either normal life or fasting. And then fasting also similarly can be the same problem. You can just participate in fasting and go like so hardcore on that side of things that you actually don't get as much out of it because you never take time to feast and to enjoy and to, like, to reflect on the beauty and goodness and be in relationship with people. I mean, there's so many things we're doing when we feast. When we feast. I broke one last week, like we're setting apart and marking and recognizing something. And like often good feasting, like just take a moment to recognize and then you know, convince the meal. You slow down, you have to stop, you have to, you have to rest. Um, we have to remember and thanksgiving. We have to celebrate and worship. It's just a natural reaction. Uh, it's a commitment. We talked about last week about ancient Near Eastern commitment was in the form of a meal. You have a, a covenant meal together to uh, cement a commitment amongst two parties, two kings, or, and then God comes and says, hey, the Lord's Supper is like a weekly commitment to follow after me. And in all that, ultimately Christians have been, and sometimes have not been, but should be known for being able to party really well. Amen. <laughs> and we should be ones that, again, there's like, it was like saying, hey, last week we talked about, like, God said to the Israelites, hey, take a pinch of your income, and that's going to, like, provide for the Levites in the temple and, and poverty and all these things amongst you, and then take another pinch of your income. And that's the party by the way. Go nuts. Not even invite other people in from the outside. It's just for you guys to enjoy with me and the covenant community regularly. And there was a form or there was a, a function of feasting that I wanted to get to last week. Uh, but that ended up going like 52 minutes. And I realized I have like other 52 minutes on this topic, and so I'm like, let's make this two to 52 uh, so I'm four minutes, uh, and then we would be back. And uh, either way, it's just by function, because we're going to be black. And so either way, um, not to do that. We just broke the back of the and so I want to take one week to really look at what it looks like to feast, particularly in this function of communing together. Yes, with God, being present to God. We talked a little bit about that last week, but the more importantly, the function of a regular practice of Feasting to be in communion with each other. And you see it all over the New Testament, but I think the clearest example is the book of Acts. It's Acts 2, 42 through 47. I'm going to read you in a second. This is the earliest picture of the church that we see. And here's what we see 42, 9 11 and 11. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done to the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing groceries to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day that they were being saved. So the very first picture we get of the church. Again, if you're going to emphasize something in this writing, and put it in bold or italics, you just repeat. And repeat at the top and bottom of this early portrait, breaking bread in homes. But it's not just where it stops. Every time Paul is going to greet somebody, 
in his letters. He's gonna write Romans 16. He's gonna say that he wants to greet those who risk their necks in our life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches and the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their houses. Uh, in their house. In Colossians 4 15, he says, Give my greetings to brother brother Latticea Minva in the church in her house. And finally, in verse 1, Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, and our sister, our Archippus, and the fellow soldier, and the church in your house. And the reason I'm hammering this point home is because it's important for us to take stock that there's a lot of what we import in baggage to the term of church that's not wrong, but it's just not always been this way. And we sometimes can think of it as my our experience, like we import it back to the Bible and assume that our experience is their experience. And again, society and culture, this is all developing in an intentional way. I'm not going to moralize any of this. I'm just going to tell the story for our purposes this morning. But it's just helpful to recognize there's some things that we import into what they were doing that they would have no concept of what we're doing right here. And so I think the best way to do this is actually to take a little trip to the architecture. Um, so I know the pictures, because uh, that's too hard to ask for what we have. Uh, but, I mean, we have, right? Uh, anyway. Uh, but just the words, uh, I'm going to walk through just the formation five major stops in architectural development in what it is in the case of a building that is sometimes called a church. And so the first uh, stop in our journey is the first early church, and their architecture was their house. Christianity is illegal. And there's no place, I mean, you're not going to build a building and put a sign up. Uh, when that's the case. So, you meet in your house. <coughs> this is ultimately why Paul has these churches going all in houses, and he's writing to them, and they're meeting around a table. And around a meal. The first, earliest painting we have of the gathered Christian community is called the Fractio of Anastresco. And it's in a catacomb underneath Rome. And it's a picture of seven people at a table fish, bread, and wine. Because that's what they pictured when they said church. The Sunday gathering, Sunday in the Roman world was a work day. That's what happened in the season. And so you would come together for a common meeting. It was just what they did. In fact, they would call it um, the love feast, which sounds completely immoral. But uh, it wasn't. Um, it was explained by Tertullian, who's an early church father, who was a part of this culture. And he said that our feast explains itself by its name. The Greeks call it agape. Whatever it costs, our outlay in the name is a piety, it's gain. Since with the good things of the feast, we benefit the needy. As with God himself, a particular respect is shown to the lowly. The participant, being a forward money, pays first a prayer to God as much as eaten as satisfied the cravings of hunger, as much as drunk as fit the chase. After, each is asked to stand forth and sing, as he can, a hymn to God, either one of the Holy Scriptures or one of his own composers. 
as the priest commended the uh, prayer, so our prayer for this place. And as we get in the book of Colossians, and Paul is saying, hey, when you come together, one of you brings a song or a hymn or an encouragement or a prayer or a prophecy, and you just all encourage each other. There was not a lot of category for this kind of communication. And it was coming together in a circle, around a table, eating, and then encouraging one another and praying. And this wasn't just weekly, though it was weekly. That was given. In most cases, it was nightly. And this was just how they kept some people fed. And so you have this regular rhythm that again is built out of the medieval church meeting in homes around the table. And then secondly, it develops. And eventually in the Roman Empire, paganism starts dying. And with paganism dying, all of a sudden you have all these open facilities and temples that no one's using. So Christians start moving into And I don't know if you've been in a pagan temple, I don't know if you've been but um, I'll just explain to you what it's like in the Japanese. They're in an octagon, essentially. And it's not a room like this. It kind of has a clear stage area and a clear seating area. Rather, it's octagonal. Therefore, the middle of the room is the most important part of the room. And in the middle of Christian facilities and temples, they put a table. And they have a large table in which everyone could gather around. Center of gravity and focus. The table. And then you get cathedrals. In the fourth century, legalization of Christianity in Constantine uh, gives way to basically start building buildings. And so you get uh, now a place where you have meeting spaces. And the church makes a decision to build them in cross shapes. I mean, if you go throughout Europe and look from an aerial view, you'll see they are all in cross shapes. Whether you walk in, it's a really long, narrow way up to the altar. And then back a little bit, two sideways, or like seating areas for both sides, or maybe they have candles or different things going on over there, or relics. But it forms a literal cross. And that was very impactful because it no longer presented the center of the room being most prevalent, but rather the front of the room keeping the focus. And it was all about displaying the glory and the splendor of God and how he's been through Europe facades. You walk in, you know, maybe come in awe. And it was built with being larger than life, so that you walk in and you feel small. I mean, if you go to the Basilica in Rome, they, you can look up and you can like, see like these words written on the ceiling and I told you guys, but yeah, actually, if you look at the letter O, that letter O is big enough that a six-foot man can spread out his body in X and can fit entirely inside that O. And look at that. It's so wow. It's huge. It's meant to make you but it also refocuses the room to the front. And then another important thing happened that a, the church made it prohibited to meet in homes for fellowship. You say, why did they do that? Well, because when you're meeting in homes all throughout the city, and when you are particularly giving privileged seats to whether it be the poor or the morally compromised, as Jesus was often doing, as Tertullian said, hey, this is just what we do. We're regularly going to make sure that there are those who are going to be without versus the people that uh, have much. And that's where you get 1 Corinthians. He's talking about, hey, the rich are there and the poor are there, and the rich are getting there early, and 
or get me before the court and jobs and their work day and eating and drinking and everything and there's nothing but poor people and all they're together. It's a very fertile ground for false teachers to show up and start showing up in homes and start promoting the doctrine as against what the elders and the apostles are holding on to. It also becomes right for the rich to become con as people start entering into gatherings and moving from gathering to gathering simply to calm the rich, or even to the poor tend to be extorted the persecution comes. Which get there early, they come after their work day, and everything's gone. And so eventually they're like, this is too much of a logistical issue. And plus there's a whole lot of theological things that's going on with it. And eventually just say, let's make it a loaf of bread and a cup. And it will be a picture of the meal that we have. And in some places it even became a picture of the picture in which the priest would be the only one who would partake of the bread and cup as like the representative priest, you know, distributing it to all the believers on behalf of all believers. And so it became a picture of a picture of the thing. And then you get colonial church architecture. Uh, with the Reformation in 1517, Martin Luther, and you have the Protestant Reformation in full swing. And at this moment, the primary focus of the church moves away from not the meal and no longer displaying the glory of God primarily, but now it's we have a lot of people that are undereducated, are illiterate, and have been taught poorly by the church. And if they were taught at all, most masses were in Latin, which nobody spoke, not even most of the priests who preached it. And so it's like we have no, all this superstition and things start throwing up, and this is where you get demons with scales and angels with wings. There are no wings angels in the Bible. Mind blown. And, uh, and so you get all these things that start coming out of, of not the Bible, but of just superstition. And so there's a sense of like, we need to re-educate and re-teach people the truth of the scriptures. And so we start doing things like getting scripture translated into native languages of the people, which Tyndale, the person who does the first native language, died for. And then, of course, what you do is you make what's the most important thing, teaching. The pulpit. Nobody can read. So you need to teach the Bible. And that doesn't do any good to put it in people's languages alone. And so you create a box or a rectangle. A clear stage area that is perfect for acoustics. You go to the old cathedrals, you can't hear a thing. The noise gets swallowed up into the glory of God because it's in here. But when you come into something that's acoustically set up to where a person stands up front, you would be able to speak to the whole room. And that's a lot of times where they're longish in this shoot the voice straight back. And the focus goes from the altar to the pulpit. Why? This is where the sermon comes from, by the way. Before this time, you don't have a lot of concepts of what we're doing right now. There's a 40, you know, lucky-ish minute thing of monological teaching. Or, yeah, uh, yeah, because it just wasn't that place. But again, it makes sense in that time. It was a good move. Now we're in a place where we actually have an overabundance of content to teach you. 25 sermons better than this on your phone. Don't tell me. You can't. And that's the spot. And I better going on right now. You can be live streaming right now. And so all of a sudden, we're still in that model. 
that was, we kind of put back, like, oh, it's always about preaching, like, no, I mean, it's like, we wrote the free story, and even now, it's not what he meant, because this is not a show. Okay. Regardless, you then get um, our last stop on the tour, which is the theater. So the turn of the uh, to the 20th century, from 19 to the 20th, you get the urbanization of cities, and in the urbanization of cities, you also get the rise of entertainment culture. People are coming together. Radio is going uh, is becoming big as the century moves on, and so people are in the city. They want to go out on Fridays and Saturdays. And see and do and music and concerts become really popular. And the church all of a sudden realizes we can do that. We can, uh, music was always like a thing. I mean, you can see Tertullian saying, like, around the original love feast, they'd all stand up and afterwards they'd all sing a song. We're totally doing it at our institute. Like, yeah, what do you got? Original composition? Or not? I mean, <laughs> and uh, so we're just going to, yeah, make it happen. And, but there was always a part to do music, but what was different was that. Music became more of a focus, and it wasn't just creating environments where you could have oration clearly heard, but also acoustically sound for music and for drums and for creating the same culture that people expected on Friday and Saturday night on Sunday morning. And that's moved into a whole new level now is with like warehouses that get darkened out and like windows covered up so that you can have dark church. Which was that, but a concert reflection of uh, that lights and sound, and you feel like you were in a concert experience. But you recognize there's something powerful about that. I mean, this is an expression in front of you are like, begging for dark church to happen here. It didn't happen here, but those ones. And uh, instead, but interesting fact, we originally conceived the space, we were going to orient it that way. I'm so glad we didn't do that. We've been blinded every sunny day for like 30, 40 minutes until we moved to the throne. But, um, but either way, Andy would have to walk the front of the bathroom. I don't know what in the world we were doing. Either way, uh, but regardless. Um, and so you get dark church, and you get concert experiences, and you get all these things that reflect the entertainment organization, popular music culture. And you start to be like, this is a long cry away from people meeting around the table with fish and bread and wine and yeah, I'm not moralizing any of this. I'm just telling the story. There's been things that have been necessary to form it the way that it has become. But there, and there are other times where we just need to look at it and say, hey, what is good about what we bring to out of our culture and out of our moment? And what is dangerous? And I would argue that if this is your expression of truth, this is only your expression of truth. Or if even just this and see when you're only expressing the church. Services. 
because they're coming together to encourage each other, to share community. There's a study that was done in the Atlantic on the importance of eating together for children. He correlated eating together to children's development, that children who don't eat together with their families are 40% more likely to have obesity, teenage pregnancy, academic performance is lower, depression, anxiety, drug and alcohol. Those who eat together have lower rates of all the others, higher graduation rates, and better relationships with their parents. Some mental health professionals have gone as far as to say that the solution to most mental health cases in America are to eat together with family and friends, preferably outside. You do those things and you are well on your way to curing much of mental health. But with all that knowledge, the percentage of families that eat together is 17. Over half of that is over a teenager. And over the half of that, even all of these did, it was in The average meal time 60 years ago was an hour and a half. But today, you know what it is? 12 minutes. Average meal time. That's average. It's a lot of people bring that average down. <laughs> What are you doing? All weights. <laughs> I mean, that's actually true. <laughs> and at your desk. I mean, there's all sorts of science going out about just the need for like mental breaks and work and the lack of productivity that happens from just always eating at your desk and work. And they're just starting to scratch in the research. Hacking the American Mind is a book that was written and it's talking about the uh, conflation of pleasure and happiness. That we take pleasure and happiness. And we conflate them. We think they're the same thing. So pleasure is associated with dopamine. I eat something, uh, I have a relationship, a sexual experience, and it creates dopamine pleasure. Serotonin is connected with contentment. I'm able to just sit and be. And I'm good. In fact, anxiety, what's happening biologically, that you're creating chemicals in your body that eats serotonin faster than you can reproduce it. By eventually, if you're anxious for longer, it moves to depression. Like, are these things interesting? Like, interesting and connected? Yes, they are. Because once you've eaten up all the serotonin, you can't replace it fast enough, and anxiety is just waiting to gobble up every bit of serotonin that comes back into your system. You literally, I mean, that's what he's like, that kind of depression is when you become like lethargic or you can't stop moving, because it's just like, I can't stop because my mind doesn't feel at rest ever. I can never actually have a moment of contentment. And I know a lot of you, including myself, have experienced that. It is hell on earth. That's serotonin. Very good. The idea of pleasure is uh, connected with experience or substance. The idea of contentment or happiness is connected to character and being Content, the experience of pleasure says, this feels good. I want more, or more, or more. The experience of happiness says, this feels good. I have enough. The experience of pleasure, if it's worse, moves into addiction or death. The experience of happiness is a sentiment. You are never seeking death. 
the book then talks about how the government and individualism and commercialism and consumerism have all kind of conflated together to make this situation where we're completely addicted to our thumbs and sugar and pretty much everything. And as we do that, because it continually drives the need to want more and more and more, he says, here's a way to survive society in today's world. He says, you need three things. It's fascinating. Here's the three things you need. First is religion. Second one, community. You have deep relationships. Third one, healthy lifestyle choices. He said, if you want to do them all three at the same time, eat a meal with your religious community. Which is exactly what Jesus did today. Exactly what the church did today. A woman. And so it becomes the standard point of reason. Like, is church around the table? And the lack of it, both what has led to the results that we're seeing and has the ability to counter the results that we're seeing. And I'm not just talking again about weekly, I'm talking about the regular community. And the word companion or companionship or company comes from the Latin cum, which is together, and panis, which is bread. Your company is literally who you break bread together with. Communion, common, all of these things are coming from that same root of together with bread. And so I just really want to make some applications to that as a community, just as I think what we really need to live into. And so I, I, the rest of this is, I hope, very highly applicable. And I, I don't want you just to hear it and take a note about it and do it for a week and then forget it. Also, I have a wallpaper in my house of those things. But I really want this to be something that we as a community embrace and just examine where, where we are. And so I want to talk about what it looks like to just do community in church and something that includes this, but it's just not, this is so far down the list on the top priority of what we're doing. It becomes this idea of, again, the Atlantic. You know, earlier this year, or at the end of last year, we did a long expose on Timothy Keller, the pastor of the Beer Manhattan in New York, uh, who has retired now. And, uh, and in his retirement, they just were talking about in the Atlantic, and just saying, well, we have to recognize this pastor has come in and changed the city. And so they were start talking about his life, his career, and talking to him. And he talked about how he was very, by the difference of his ministry in New York, the Beer Manhattan, and his ministry in rural Virginia, which he started for nine years. And he took like a church of 120 people and grew it to all of 120 people. Great thing to tell him. Basically, just maintained the status quo nine years as a rural church in Virginia. And he said it was interesting that in that context, it was a blue collar context. And so he said, because of that, people didn't care what you had to say on Sunday morning unless you loved them, shepherded them, walked alongside them, married their sons and daughters, performed funeral services, were in the hospital with them. Then after enough of that, they would show up being like, okay, I'm interested in what you might have to say. Where he said, in New York, it was a white-collar context. And there, they would not listen into their life and ministry 
until they heard you on Sunday and decided to do that something special. It's this opposite paradigm of do I listen to you because I know how much you love me? Or are you trying to get me to love you by listening? One of us is burning out pastors like the sex drugs in my life. I mean, the reason pastors are dropping their flag right now is because there's this white collar pressure concept to be TED Talk is genius, funny, scriptural every week. And it doesn't matter how many you nailed last year, it's a new week. More people come to the door. And it's the baseline model that's probably getting more people each week in and it gets bigger each time. And the pressure of success and failure gets bigger each time. And all these people are coming through, didn't hear anything last week. And so it's this constant pressure. More in the door and more to hear the gospel and yes and amen. But eventually it's it's going to continually, it's going to continue to ravage the within five years are gone. Within 90% burn insurance people. And just need more volunteers and they get tired and they're on the sidelines. Or their life breaks down. But you know, when your life is sideways, <coughs> you can give a rip about the sermon. You could care less about the program if they're not fostering an authentic relationship in which you are able to sit around and open up your soul to I mean, even in a white-collar context, you eventually have to go blue-collar and things go bad. And here's the thing. It's going to go bad for you. I can't say this to you enough. I would love you. Suffering is normal. Comfort is the exception. And so I don't know if that's going to be death, or divorce, or poverty, or unemployment, or just general confusion, and my sermons will do crap for you. And I know that. I've seen enough of that. I've got enough of that. Willow Creek in 2007, who I was making church outside of Chicago, performed a massive study for over 6,000 people who attended the church. They did qualitative studies quantitative and interviews to find out how much growth happened in the people over a period of time. In 2008, Bill Hyde was otherwise burned out. Released a book of evil. And here's the big reveal. Nobody grew up. They could not find any significant growth in anyone. In anyone. I mean, we have tons of data now to say, Another conversation I had with Zach used to attend here. He used to say, like, 
whenever somebody just asks me to support the church or the ministry, I just want to see what they're out for me. I want to see what they're doing because I don't want to just support your coffee and lunch and And, you know, he's like, who wants to get ROI? What's the return on investment? And Nate was like, that's a stupid thing to her. Because ministry literally is getting coffee and meals with people. I mean, yes, there's programs, and yes, we want to serve the neighborhood, we want to do all those pretty things, but if it's not based around people that are sharing meals together and actually opening up and processing their lives and processing when the stuff goes sideways, I have really block yourself. <laughs> <laughs> then it isn't enough. And you have to love people intrusively. Meaning, particularly when stuff is going down, it's like, like they're going to the business page and meeting things really young. They don't know it. They don't have time to think about what they need right now. And if they did, they would feel like a burden for asking it because they need it every moment of every day. I said, you know, like, hey, do you need anything? Let me know. Do you show you call and say, hey, I'm on my way and I'm doing this. Tell me if you want me to do it. And then you have to do this. You have to make again binge this and I think this is thing. You have to watch the because here's the reality. I was, uh, I had a renewal day on Thursday, which I try to take once a month. I feel like this is the first time taking one in years. Either way, um, once a month, I try to get out of the office, clear the schedule, and put on my schedule, so I don't schedule over it. Uh, but I'm always busy. And then anyway, I go get the ROI. And uh, you gotta show them this, and all these things. And so I tried to take the day out and be away. And I, I went to get uh, lunch, and I wanted a lunch that like wasn't going to make me sleep for the day. Uh, so I went to Garden Table, which is like the most pretentious place to eat. No, <laughs> um, and I was there, and because I wasn't like, uh, I, I was by myself, I was able just to kind of look around at people. And um, <laughs> as I did that, I like noticed this sense in my heart of just like, I have this like natural sense in my heart to be like, all oh, these people are jerks and I hate them. And I'm like, what is it? And like, part of it is because like, you have not taken a real in a long time. And, uh, but it's also just whenever I naturally get stressed and tired or whatever, like, I just naturally have this sense to like look around and be like, I hate everybody. And if you're honest, I think that's everything. Because we live in this place that we are in at worst competition with everybody. And at best, other people are useful to our goals and success. And when you live like that, you kind of learn to have a low level of disdain. And it comes out when you're tired, hungry. So when that's the reality, what they thought was is that deep down, nobody really believes in love for everybody. 
And so when you start loving someone, right? And you're being intangible, you're showing up, serving, doing stuff, intrusively doing stuff that you didn't ask for. Well, for the long time, and again, that's why you don't ask, like, hey, do you need anything? What's it going to say? That's just what you say. Because what that translates is to, I don't want to tell you because either you do it and you think I'm a burden, or you wouldn't do it and preach me what I already believe in, which is the next level. And so you have to do, you just have to show up and serve people for a long time, five and three, different stuff, just do stuff unasked. And then after a while, they will give you a test. They will ask something of you. They'll actually do this multiple times throughout the relationship, and each one is a cataclysmic they will give you a test, and sometimes it will be highly inconvenient. Like, because it's intentionally designed to see, do you love me this much? So that'll just be it. Two biggest goals in this week. And I don't say this as a pastor, I say this as a Christian. Two biggest goals in ministering and loving people. Recognize the test. And pass it. Every time. Meaning, outside of like, it's your kid's championship game, promise they would be there. But maybe even then, if I can get to them ahead of time and say, hey, daddy, what do you need to do? This is what you need to do. Do you understand this? No, okay, then I won't do this. But if you do, I won't do this every time because I'm not going to sacrifice the relationship on the idol ministry, but I'm going to this time. I, this is a test, and daddy is a That's why it's going to be a weird times at night. It's going to be really inconvenient. And if there's any demonic spiritual warfare to be had in this world, it's going to be at the time when you really need to be doing something. And it will be a test. And if you pass it, walls crumble. There's a woman in a sewer entering into. This was an MC that just was phenomenal and amazing. The host was like inviting people in all, all the state states and everything. It was an open door policy. As they say, we buy food for people, that's what we do. And this person took advantage of it for three months, four nights a week. Just showed up every night. No real reason to be, to be giving her just a comfort food or anything. It was just like four nights a week, every week for three months, she was there. At the end of that time, she opened up to the abuse that she'd seen as a child. And they said, oh, this is what you've done. This is what the three months took. This is what the four nights a week was. It was to do the long game of love me this much. Because I have to tell you something. And maybe she's conscious of it, maybe she wasn't. But I'm not willing to say this until I know I can trust you. And then ministry began. Always love her. That's always part of it. That is like, that is always part of it. If it's a small test, big test, that big reveal, it's small reveal. So what do you do this week? 
Build your family. People always think like, oh man, if I was full time in ministry, I can just meet people all the time. No, you can't. Because you know why? Nobody else is full time in ministry. And you know what I mean with people? Breakfast, lunch, dinner, maybe a coffee. Meeting. The exact time that you meet with people. Why? Because I'm meeting with you. <laughs> your schedule is my schedule. At least your my social schedule. And I I've I've always I've wrestled with this for the first few years based off that comment though. I don't want to pay for your coffee waiting for lunch schedule. But now it's been like, forget that. I'm just leaning into keeping my lunch schedule and my coffee schedule as full as I possibly can with people that I'm trying to prioritize and just trying trying to get after and get to know and break into it and feel <coughs>
together so that when we bring someone from the outside, we're not bringing them into an awkward family reunion where you're with your distant second cousins, but you're actually bringing them into brothers and sisters who love each other and who have fought and reconciled and moved through things and have walked through some of the crappiest times in their lives together. And that's actually really compelling when we can bring But you don't just do it utilitarian, oh, we're gonna hang out so we more attractive than the other person. You do it because that's actually what this is about. And so think about the body, think about the whole body. Meaning married people with kids, which single are you intentionally investing in? Single people, which married people or married people with kids are you intentionally investing in? And yes, you've got to work around your schedule. But if you're single or if you're married without kids and young, my kids love you. <laughs> they really love you. They think you are amazing. Griffin and McLean know this in Miami too. The second they walk in, they are Jungle Jim and Joe Cat. Not because they want to. I mean, maybe, but they're just naturally that way. Uh, except for Judas, a little iffy on McLean, but I think he's got a thing going in his life. Um, either way, but they love and I have the most influence in my life. My wife and I have the most influence on their life. <coughs> but it's been shown time and time again, it's the parental influence, it's the parents, the only one saying it, and it gets that time of rebellion, or it gets to that time of like, oh, I only got that from one source. It falls apart. And so I need a community of people that I can just like, not just point to, but they can just naturally see that Mr. McLean and Ms. Lindsay believe that daddy does. Mr. Griffin believes that mom does. I mean, we're, we're, there's, art, there's a 30-page article called, and it was on the death of the nuclear family in saying actually we should kill it because it's only an idea that shows from the 50s and 60s and hasn't really worked since then. People are like, what do you mean? Like, you know, like the whole like modern family, like what? Like, actually what they're talking about is that the idea of just parents and kids living in one house alone only showed up in the 50s. And it was post-World War II, and success of the nation, and you no longer had to live with your parents, or your grandparents, or your aunts, or your uncles, or your cousins, and commercialism and consumerism said, hey, everybody should own their own house, so that everybody has to own their own stuff, and their own refrigerator. And we all of a sudden got a nuclear family that became your own alone together. Versus generations of people living together and, and shepherding and walking alongside kids together and they talk about all the benefits that it is as well as not only for just kids but for the poor I and mean, they talk about like in the system the poor have always not been able to do it because even the people who can make this work for them have to have a huge network of babysitters and counselors and coaches and tutors and teachers which they either relate to with network or they pay to be their extended family. But the poor can't do that themselves. And so now you're actually being built multiple family or multiple generational homes because there's the death of the nuclear family that the author of the family lived with. It was never meant to be this way. There are always going to be together with multiple generations, multiple people of wisdom to remember and know and see the relationship. And Christians should be doing that for their family. Talking about the family of like true orphans and widows, yeah. We're talking about people who are just like they move to India and they have no family. They graduate from college and yeah, no. 
or you've got a ton of relationships that nobody Somebody speaking to the whole body. This includes economically too. How do I ask people like James said I'm not referencing the poor, but I'm finding those who are not normally be at my cabinet and have me for like gathering and sitting back at the start. You have a piece this week, you have a piece next week, you have a back, but this person can't. And I invite them, I sit them and see one. Let me get back to that. In just a second. Oh man, I got my soapbox. I gotta move through this real quick, these last two pieces, and I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. Uh, mission and justice. Communities, it's something, but mission justice. So the church was meeting in homes around tables for hundreds of years, and it spread through the Roman Empire, and then eventually, when the Roman Empire fell, became the Christendom Empire. Not through building mega churches with tons of influence and attendance, but through hundreds of thousands of gatherings and homes in the place. And they worked together to get them in place, and people were pushing their grandparents, their children, their parents out of the streets because to keep them in was the night death upon everyone. Christians came behind and kept them up and brought them into their nightly gatherings of meals, inviting death upon the entire house. And that was powerful. It wasn't Constantine. It was this happening with Constantine recognizing the reality. This is getting out of control because it's powerful. And so maybe a mission would look more like us having dinners that are going to invite people to that are compelling that come into. Jump in here like this. In years to come, we're going to need many small communities which will welcome lost and lonely people, offering them a new form of family and a sense of belonging. In the past, Christians who wanted to follow Jesus spoke to hospitals and schools. Now there are so many of these Christians who commit themselves to the new communities of welcome, to live with people who have no other family, and to show them that they are loved and can grow to greater freedom that, uh, and that they in turn can love and give love to others. And lastly, justice. Of mission. Justice. First Corinthians. You get that whole thing about the Lord's Supper and the rich coming and getting drunk and the poor having nothing to eat. And like then Paul's bouncing around and he's talking about like sexual misconduct and everything. And like, Paul, what are you doing? Overeating sex. Like you're not married. You can't stay in your lane, you know? But it's because all those went together in their society and culture, because in Rome, the meal was called a symposium. And just this is normal culture. You have invite people over, have a big feast nightly, and then after everybody has eaten their fill, you dismiss the women and children, and the prostitutes and sex slaves come in, and more alcohol comes in, and more food comes in, and the men just basically go crazy. And it became that this was just culture. It wasn't like special. This was just a nightly rhythm of oppression. And Jesus fascinatingly takes the meal, which again was not just a bread and a cup, it was just a bread and a cup at the beginning of a full meal. And he uses that, a broken system of injustice, to be what he says, this is going to be the turning point of all of society. Not only by spreading my church, but I'm going to use this as a picture of my death and resurrection. And how does Jesus like it? 
conservatives. It became a nightly and even larger weekly meal in which there was no welfare, there was no dignity, there was no food stamps or any sense of child support. There was simply meals in Christian homes in which they would bring in the food and they would subvert culture. And so just again, I think what this could look like for our community is two things. Yeah, one, I think it's great to consider with the missional community a week in each week. And our MC started doing that this, this year. I know like four or five others also started this year too. It's just a helpful time. First 45 minutes you come in and just be together. The kids can participate in it naturally. Yeah, it doesn't need a lot of other stuff. But you just have them there and you can just process your day and process things with other people and just time together. But if that's where it stops, then it's just, again, it's not good. I think this looks like all of us filling our calendars proactively. Oh, yeah. All right. Uh, either way, filling your calendars with lunch and dinners and breakfast and coffee. I mean, how awesome would it be if I had to go through my entire phone to actually get enough people in the schedule because everybody was busy meeting with everybody else, doing life with everybody else. The vision of someone has never been a small group of people providing the vision of Christian services for large groups of people, but has always been equipping the saints to do the work of ministry, which is breakfasts, lunches, dinners, and coffee. Recognizing the text. So if you're going to do a weekly feast for MC, I mean, you can do it multiple different ways. Some people like rotate who brings the meal. Some people do a sign up at a kitchen. If your MC does that, you need to meaningfully contribute. He's not shit. Because <laughs> <laughs> out. Every time you do that, you get seven bags of chips. Four of them being the same kind. And that, and then the main dish of whoever hosts, and that just burns their mouth and burns their face. And so participate. Make this meaningful. Take one person of your week. And do something good. And then, or you can do like, what we do is like every day in our MC, is my wife five bucks, and she just makes the meat every week. Because she's already making it for us. You know, it's like when she got six people in her own family, it's not that much harder to make it for one guy. And so you just keep multiplying the recipe and people pay in and it just all works. And some people forget some weeks, but visitors come and don't pay some weeks and over time it, it probably looks like that. It looks like that, it looks like filling the calendars. It looks like this picture, then I'll end with this quote from Rosario Bartosz. She writes, the gospel comes to the house to practicing radically ordinary hospitality in our post-Christian world. She says this, God calls Christians uh, to practice hospitality in order to build loving Christian communities, to build nightly, not weekly, nightly table fellowship with fellow truth bearers, to ease the pain of orphanhood, widows, and prison, to be qualified as elders of the church, and to be 
good and faithful stewards of what God has given to us in the gospel. Uh, the gospel call it greater strangers than the neighbors into the family of God is all pretty straight out when you read the Bible, especially the book of Matthew. And it requires both hosts and guests. We must participate as both hosts and guests, not just one or the other, as giving and receiving are good and sacred and connect people and communities in important ways. Radically ordinary hospitality. I love that phrase. It's a word. It means this. God promises to put the line in family to come to be exist. And he intends to use your house as living proof. Host and guest. Or do you open the door from the inside to the outside? You're coming to practice that really This could really change our church. It could really change our neighborhood city. It'll take a lot longer. Father God, oh, before I do, prayer team, back, <coughs> let us do communion here in a picture of the pictures. But do this. Tear it off, dip it, and hold it. It's going to drip a little, so don't keep it over your white plate. Um, but hold it. And then I'm going to come back here during the community moment, and we're all going to take it together. It's just a picture of taking it together. I don't know if we do it every week, but we're doing it. Anyway, Father God, I pray for you to again, shape this into our lives and our Lord, please, let this be not just teaching that doesn't transform, but practice that integrates into our lives that actually does transform. I think this world has enough amazing white collar ministries and ultimately has little fruit to show.